Welcome. My name is Dr. Steph, and this is our Courageous Capital Stewards podcast with Impact Finance Center. And today I am super excited because uh, we have a special guest, Ian Chility, and Ian helps lead the Community Foundation of Utah. Ian, welcome. We're super excited to have you today. Thanks, Steph. It's great to be here. Fantastic. So Community foundations and impact investing. I have not actually said this publicly, but I'm, I'm going to say this out loud a little bit. Um, one of the reasons I love working with community foundations is when you think about capital stewards, I what, what the capital stewards I work with are individuals, foundations, family offices, and companies. Now, there's also life insurance companies and pension funds and other capital stewards, but those four are the ones that I interface with a lot. And then you think about um, civil society, and I think of it as a root system. And when you think about, there's like associations of money, for lack of a better word, and um, the association of all the associations of foundations is the United Philanthropy Forum. And they used to have all the regional associations, and they used to be called regional associations of grant makers, or, and then and then they changed that name. I think it's philanthropic supporting orgs. So you have a philanthropy Colorado, you have the Intermountain Funders Network, you have philanthropy Northwest. So you have the 43 place-based ones and, and then there's probably like 200 other um, thematic ones on communities of interest and identity. And then you have the community foundations, right? Which are really associations of individuals within uh, within different communities. And, you know, I looked up the other day, the state of Washington has 73 community foundations. I think Colorado, we have 20 to 30, maybe 30 to 40. And you think about that's where regardless of your political affiliation, you have a heart and a soul, your tax person, you, you, you're successful, you, you sell your company and your tax person's like, wait, you need to donate. You can donate to a donor advice fund like Schwab or Fidelity, or you could donate and, and set up a donor advice fund at your local community foundation. And so when I think about it, I think of the community foundations are really the root systems of civil society in some ways, where you have capital stewards coming together um, on all different uh, points of view, but really committed to trying to help make their world a better place. So that's why I'm super excited to have you here today. And the Community Foundation of Utah is um, kind of a special community foundation in some ways. But before we dive into that, we want to hear about your journey about where did you start your career? Where'd you grow up? And how did you find yourself to this job today? How did I find myself at my job? So it's a, I think like a lot of people who end up working at a community foundation, it's kind of a convoluted, circuitous path. So my, uh, the short story for me is I, wasn't born in Utah, but I, I grew up there as a kid for the most part. And and when I turned 18, my parents were moving out of state to go down to the South and I was going off to college and I, I never thought I was ever going to come back. And I ended up, you know, going to school and working and living places and going to grad school. And my wife's family was from Utah. I kept coming back. Every time I'd come, we'd sort of be like, wow. Utah is actually a pretty special place. So we, about 10 years ago, we moved back and my, my 
job was that uh, in technology commercialization, mostly focused on clean tech and energy efficiency technologies. And then um, from there, I ended up starting a nonprofit with my coworker, focused on supporting early stage entrepreneurs in the social venture space. And did that for a while. And we ended up partnering with the Community Foundation of Utah um, on a couple of projects. I still didn't really have any idea what a community foundation was, but we knew some people over there. Got to the point where I started uh, feeling like it was time to do something different and knew some board members and staff members at the Community Foundation of Utah. And the CEO, Alex Eaton, said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for somebody to come and I manage the day-to-day so I can get out of the weeds and be a CEO. And I was like, okay, well, what, what does the Community Foundation do? And the more I learned about it, the more fascinated I was. And so I ended up working out and been here um, about five years now, almost. Um, I love that. I love that story. And, and uh, you and Alex are, make an incredible force of a team to lead that. Alex has a really interesting background, I think, for a community foundation leader also. Tony Macklin on our team, you know, often uh, pulls from the literature and says there's four types of community foundations. And so why don't you tell us um, how, when you think of a community foundation, um, explain how your community foundation is organized and how it may be different or similar to other community foundations. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the running joke with community foundations, all tell ourselves is if you've met one community foundation, you've met one as we're all kind of a little different. Uh, but, uh, we're, we're unique. I think in that Utah was, as far as we're aware, the last state to have a community foundation. So we're only about 15 years old, which is pretty young by community foundation standards. And uh, the interesting, you know, trade-off of that age and being in an ecosystem that's newer for a community foundation is that we don't have a lot of discretionary assets. So a lot of community foundations have, you know, fairly sizable endowment, discretionary endowment, uh, whereas we don't. Our endowment's about $4 million and the other 200 and and 20 million assets in the foundation is either mostly donor advised funds or uh, community impact funds. Some people call them field of interest funds that are set up around different different issues in the community. So we don't have a lot of sort of direct um, direction over the vast majority of our assets, which is a little bit different. But the, I think kind of the upside of our, our relative youth is that we're, um, you know, we, we don't have a, 30, 40, 50, 100 year legacy. And so doing new things, doing different things, doing things faster is a lot easier for us uh, than I think for some other community foundations because we don't have that precedent and legacy about how things have been done. Uh, so, And that, with the fact that we were founded and still have a lot of uh, board members and folks who are kind of that entrepreneur VC kind of person who, you know, is used to moving fast, likes to do things differently, likes to see, you know, where we can push the boundaries. So we've, I think, been able to move on some things, you know, pretty quickly and do do some pretty interesting stuff considering our, our age. I I love that. Um, let's talk about for people who are even completely new. I mean, you and I could go deep into a community foundation, uh, not 101, but 110. Who, what kind of person opens up a donor advised fund and why do you open up a donor advised fund and how do people f- select you 
But like, do you want to talk about that psychology a little bit? Sure. So in our case, you know, I think some some organizations have a really low minimum on a donor advice fund that's like $2,500 or $5,000. So in that case, is neat because it opens up a kind of a whole world of individuals who can you can utilize these funds. In our case, most of our donors come are entrepreneurs who uh, set up a fund when they're selling their companies. So there's some tax advantages to gifting company ownership and during a in advance of a of a business merger or acquisition. And so a lot of our donors. Um, our, our business folks who set their fund up during during that time. And um, in Utah, obviously, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints plays a big role in our community and that uh, members of that faith tradition have a uh, tithe to their church, 10% of their income. And so philanthropy in that way is already really ingrained into a, a large percentage of Utah's population. And so a lot of folks set up a donor-advised fund at least in the short term for that tithing obligation. And then they do, you know, future philanthropy after that. Um, and, you know, and why people choose us uh, over some of the other, you know, like a Fidelity or other kind of financial institutions that house DAFs is, you know, as a community foundation, we're, we're local, we're a place-based institution. And so donors who want to do their philanthropy locally, we have a pretty decent knowledge of what's happening in the community in terms of what the organizational um, profiles are, who's working in different spaces, what the needs are, where philanthropy can really be additive locally. And so folks who want to give locally set up funds with us to kind of utilize that expertise. And then I would say we're also pretty financially sophisticated. So a lot of these gifts of company ownership are fairly complicated and we can do them not only pretty well, but pretty quickly, because we're just a lot smaller than, for example, like a Fidelity, who's a, a huge company, and they they need a certain amount of time often to to manage a transaction. Whereas we're a little bit more nimble and can do it a little faster. Ooh, that's a really good um, uh, explanation. And later on, let's talk about your priorities right now, like what the priorities are for Utah. How many other donor advisement providers are there in Utah? That's right. So the only other community foundation is Park City. So Park City Community Foundation is serves Summit County in the state. And then it, from a community foundation standpoint, it's really just them and us. And then there's the um, Deseret Trust Company has a donor advice fund uh, program. So that's affiliated again with the, with the LDS Church. And then there's also the, again, the national players that are everywhere, the Fidelities, the Schwabs, the yeah. Ian, you did not know this, and this is this is a blast from my past, like 25 years of blast from my past, but um, part of my master's degree was an NSF, um, National Science Foundation, cross-site grazing study, and it had seven sites throughout the U.S. and um, Colorado and Kansas and, and North and South Dakota and Minnesota, and it also had a site on Deseret uh, Land and Livestock's property. So I lived out at Deseret yeah. Ranch up up in northern Utah as I did my master's on at Utah State. So that's a fun little fact to, to bring into the podcast. Did not see that coming. So let's talk about, um, I asked you uh, before we began, I'm like, how did we even connect? And you're definitely one of the gifts of the pandemic for me. Um, and so for the folks that don't know this or not, 
we do a small uh, one-on-one training program. We call it our fellowship. And and I don't remember, I was just asking Ian, like, how did you come about or wh- what were you seeking um, when you reached out to us, if you can even remember that way, that, that long ago um, with the pandemic uh, fog of all of our lives? Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, I, I did that. How long has it been since I did my fellowship? Like three years, years four years now, yeah, at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah crazy. Um, but yeah, I think really my initial motivation was, um, you know, I don't have a finance background in the in the technical sense, and I, I guess was a was a aware enough to kind of put the the really high level pieces together, the opportunity that philanthropy has if it can align a hundred percent of its capital towards its mission of whatever it is that the foundation or donor advice fund or whatever was established for instead of what you know has historically happened for the most part where you have five percent of your capital at any one time kind of mission aligned and then the, the other 95 percent is doing you know a whole smattering of things but very few of which are probably aligned with um with your mission, you know, it was just basically to get that, that 19 X multiple of capital in, in, into the system seemed, you know, just a fantastic opportunity. So I was like, I, I want to learn about how, how philanthropy can actually do that. And so that's what led me to the fellowship with impact finance center, which was, you know, an amazing experience and, um, really, I think set me up to, to really understand some of these opportunities much more specifically and tactically and as a practitioner, how to begin implementing them. It's so interesting because you've even been a part of our co-evolving in the last three to four years too, of even how we talk about it, who you say what to from that perspective, but that I've never even heard anybody say like the 19x or multiplier effect, multiple effect, essentially saying there's, let's say you have a hundred million dollars you have 5 million that are deeply impactful, attempting positive impact, and we say a negative 100% return. And then you have this other 95 million, which may have negative return and or positive return with trying to get that um, that percentage. So I love the way that you just frame that from that perspective. So we at Impact Finance Center say your philanthropy is an investment and all of your investments have impact. And Ian, I want to... Um, run by this um, simple math problem. Uh, Dr. Kelly Martin you know, joined our team last year and has an achievement gap background versus a wealth gap, solving the wealth gap problem, and made a comment the other day to us that um, her and her uh, husband, Chris, donate $10,000 last year to a foster, uh, a, a foster organization that was building housing for kids aging out of the foster system. And I haven't made a graphic of this yet, but it's a, it's a super interesting way to illustrate what you were just bringing up. And so let's call it $10,000 is our unit of impact. So they get one positive unit of impact for that $10,000. And then most people don't realize when you ask them that the, the average 401k return last year was negative 20%. And so we're just going to use this this math, I've already done the math on a calculator, it would take $80,000 um, that they get a negative 20% return. So if you combine that money, 
you essentially have $90,000 that got a negative 30% return in one positive unit of impact. And then we would probably say those eight units relative to Main Street would probably be negative impact. So even if you're positive ESG, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call those negative for the purposes of our conversation. So you get a negative 30% return on that $90,000 and you get a net negative seven units of impact versus had had there been an easy button for like a self-directed IRA, an investment cooperative like Kachua Investment Cooperative, you could have taken $80,000 out of Wall Street, got a 10% return on that, invested into housing, blended it with the 10,000 you were gonna give, that would give you 30,000 at negative 2%. Now you have nine units of positive impact. And that negative 2% money in full spectrum capital language can be lent out at 1%. And you get 30 Kellys and Chris's together as a group, and you have 1% mortgage to refinance a housing project for foster kids that aging out of the foster system. That potentially can save that foster care organization $500,000, which is another 50 units of impact. And I think that's, that's what we're talking about, like tactically, how do we, how do we make that happen and, and think about that essentially think about our expenses and our philanthropy as investments, right? Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I think anytime you can create a unit of measure that you can apply both to the quote-unquote grant-making side of the equation and the investment side of the equation. So you start to look at those two things holistically, you know, all of a sudden, you know, a whole new universe of possibilities starts to open up. It's super magic. And I think, um, we, and we call this concept full spectrum. And, and part of it is the reason also why we have, um, it is blended finance, it is integrated capital. We like those terms a lot too. But part of what we're trying to do is um, challenge the capital stewards, the those with resources to do the blended finance internal to the organization. Because when you try to blend an affordable housing project fund on the outside, there's magically never enough grant money. <laughs> Have you ever known that? Like, I don't know how that works. Yeah. But if we all, if you think about, I haven't looked at how many millionaires there are in Utah, but there's 300,000 millionaires in, in Colorado. If we do the internal blending of our finance, like we just did on that story of Kelly and Chris, then there's magically plenty of money to pay for our housing, pay for our nonprofits, pay for our businesses. Um, part of it's a mindset shift. Um, do you want to talk, Ian? You were telling me a story the other day about, um, let's say, uh, let's say you're a small nonprofit, and and I wish somebody had said, Stephanie, would you rather have a fifty thousand dollar grant or a hundred thousand dollars with a negative fifty percent return? Meaning, practically, it would be a fifty thousand dollar grant and a fifty thousand dollar recoverable grant, but. We'll say a $50,000 grant and a $100,000 negative 50% return. Me being an entrepreneurial nonprofit, I'd be like, give me the 100000 all day long. But but that's that's not most people in, in nonprofits. I mean, that's not how we in nonprofits are taught to behave. Do you want to talk about your experience or how you've been thinking about that and, and taking those, the like, how do you explain that to a nonprofit that it's like, oh, you might be better off taking a loan? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the word loan is a really scary word uh, for a lot of people, especially when you're used to the word grant. And we've 
we've done some loans, but for what they really are, recoverable grants to nonprofits over the years. And, um, you know, it, it was, you know, challenging at first, I think, to get organizations to kind of get comfortable with it, which again, cause it was, it was pretty new and which makes sense for most new things kind of have a adoption barrier, but you know, we would, you know, we spent a lot of time talking with these organizations and, you know, kind of try to communicate two things around these, these kinds of uh, investments. So one was, you know, like you said, it's like really figuring out what, how much capital do you really need to achieve what you're claiming you want to achieve? And I think nonprofits are used to kind of just trying to get by with just enough, but really saying, okay, if, if you asked for a $50,000 grant, and if we gave you a $100,000, 0% loan, and I know that sounds risky, but for me, the riskier thing is trying to deliver on a set of expectations when you've been undercapitalized in order to do so. Um, and by having the capital that you really need to achieve what you want, you know, that's, that's certainly the less risky path of the two. So that's one, you know, one piece we try to communicate. And then the other thing, you know, we try, try to say is we use, we did use the term loan, which if I was to do some of these over again, I probably would have used a different nomenclature, but, um, you know, but just trying to say like, look, these are, yes, this is technically a loan and that we're going to be, you know, giving you money and you have to give it back over a period of time, but you know, they're not, they're not the loans you typically think of. I mean, these loans we did, they weren't, they weren't collateralized. They were non-recourse. There was no interest, you know? So it was at least this agreement of like, Hey, we, we believe in this project. Uh, we believe in your ability to execute on it. You want to invest in you and we want to do it in a way that if it's successful, it's going to be revenue generated. So in that case, we would like to get our investment back from those revenues that you're generating. And could you, we just hope that like, if it's successful, can you please give us the money back so that we can do it again for somebody else? And that, that's really all, all we're asking. And I think once we had those, those kind of conversations it helped folks get more comfortable with. It's a, you know, the two words that come to mind is trust and alignment, right? I mean, you want, you definitely like problems happen when the capital steward has a different expectation than the community steward. That's like the misalignment piece. And and then, but when there's alignment and when there's trust, um, you know, from, from, if I was in your shoes, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to set aside, or there's this bucket of resources we normally give away at negative 100%. And there's a chance we could recycle it once or twice or three times or four times. And that is, is, um, I, you know, Ian, I think of it like 10 years from now, my dream is with Utah and Colorado is we've activated enough full spectrum capital stewards where we've essentially filled a cupboard of capital. And I think of it right now, it doesn't matter if you're a, a startup or a small business or a, a nonprofit. When you go to that cupboard of capital, you have like, you have three ingredients. You have a lot of butter and salt and flour. And it's like those are grants is the butter and the salt are the loans and the flour is the 10x money or the 10 15% money if you're in real estate. 
and you're kind of like, you'll make a beautiful meal out of salt and butter and flour. And what this offers, if we can, you know, grow investors at scale is, and we don't know how many it will take, um, a thousand investors, 5,000 investors, 10,000 investors that you essentially can like grow these full spectrum capital uh, investors at scale and create a cupboard with all these beautiful food and veggies and and grains that people can open up and say, this is the capital I need to do the work that I want to do at scale. And um, and I think community foundations are in such a really unique position to to be an honest broker, for lack of a better word, to hold the space of, of the capital steward and the community steward in that space. Is that how you see a little bit your charge? I do, yeah. But also, that analogy makes me hungry. But <laughs> you want to go eat after this. Um, yeah, I do. I think, um, you know, community foundations are really unique in several ways, but I think maybe what your analogy is getting at is that we're on the one hand we're we, we can be fairly sophisticated financial institutions and also sort of understand or at least kind of have an understanding of how the traditional financial world works and and be able to play in that space um, and then on the other hand you know we're nonprofits i mean we're and we're embedded in our community and and understand, you know, what a grassroots community organization is and does and what what the world is like for them. And I think there's there's very few entities that are able to do both of those things and play in both of those worlds. Uh, and I think, you know, community foundations are one of the few that are. And that just sets us up to do a lot of really interesting things over time. It sure does. Um we were recently hired by the Essex County Community Foundation to help them develop a strategic plan. And, and there were four parts to that. We we basically did the philanthropic opportunity scan and we asked their nonprofits. We did two webinars and we said, you know, we asked four simple questions. Do you have any debt? Do you have any assets? Do you have um, a social enterprise idea? Do you have a page you save? And and we asked over 300 nonprofits that question, and we sourced 129 yeses of investments within those grantees, which I think is still, I knew that would be the case, but I'm still shocked every time I'm like, wow, look at how many investments are in nonprofits, number one. Number two, we did an intermediary landscape scan, and we're going to get to that question in a second. Then we, we did uh, some engagement with donors. And then we did a, essentially like a who's who with community foundations and impact investing. And and we're going to release that report soon. And on June 15th in Denver, you're going to be a guest teacher with us um, to, sh to share your story. And, and we're showcasing nine rock star community foundations in this space. And part of why you were selected also is this tricky thing um, that I'll just say community foundations are in a tricky situation because you need this infrastructure. If you think about it from the capital steward, the capital steward wants to have a very seamless experience, but software has not been developed nor because there's only 850 of you, right? So so you're in this really tricky space of there's not a beautiful dashboard set up and technology system set up to provide that seamless 
single user interface. And so community foundations are experimenting with, call it fragmented intermediary solutions from CDFIs to intermediaries such as um, Lohas, um, or uh, I'm getting that wrong, from, from intermediaries such as CDFIs, Locus, Impact Charitable, uh, CapShift, and also Realize Impact. And in the case, you've been working with Realize Impact um, for a while. And um, and I would also say community foundations are a bit up in a rock and a rock, right? Like, like you're already doing more work than, say, a Fidelity and a Schwab locally, right? So you have more expenses. And so you're sitting here and you're like, wait a minute, my, some of my, we, we want to do this. This is the right thing to do. Some of our donors are asking for this and we don't necessarily have the capacity on staff and we don't want to charge more fees. Did I capture that rock in the rock situation well for community foundations? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, we're, community foundations are, from my perspective, we're operationally designed to do grant making additional grant making that our software systems are built for it our staff are trained for it our kind of legacy donors let's say are expect that wow. and so when we talk about kind of a more full spectrum approach uh, which has a very high impact potential we're not always operationally built to do that very well at least not at, not at first. And so that, that's really been our experience. We did, you know, a lot of these mission related investments, which are, you know, these direct investments into funds or companies that are driving impact. And, you know, we're not, we're also not investors. Um, and then in the like technical sense of that word. And so not only are we not operation designed for it, we're not, we don't know how to do diligence, a, you know, a, TE deal, like no one else on our staff does, um, but we have donors who want to do it and we want to do it because it's cool and it can, uh, you know, and it creates an, an exponential, you know, amount of impact with some right. So we, um, I've really been on a journey to figure out how do we operationally design ourselves so that we can, we can really do those things, um, without necessarily having the internal capacity or expertise around all of them. So Realize Impact has been a great partnership for us because it's allowed for us to really offer mission-related investments at scale for any donor of ours who wants to do them. And we don't have to worry about, um, you know, due diligence a deal. And we don't have to carry that deal on our books for a life of the investment. Some can be quite a long time. Um, so those sorts of partnerships have been have been really helpful. And I do think there's a big opportunity on the software side. So we've talked about, I think stuff. There really is, isn't it? Some there? sort of hackathon or something for better software in the foundation space, because there's certainly a need for it. Um, and it and, and actually one of the outcomes that came about this community foundation impact investing landscape scan is we're 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 gonna release a report soon and and we ended up saying as a thank you, um, would you like to to meet each other and and that's been fun to bring y'all together and 
And when I think about it, I, I could see like us adding another 10 community foundations to this report and that 20 of you of like, okay, how do we, how do we create a financially self-sustaining uh, software that will actually work for you all to have that dashboard, right? It doesn't have to be um, a huge moneymaker. It just has to be something that would work. If it worked for 20 of you, it could then roll out and work for the rest of the system from that perspective. So I think let's just put that out there into the ether and the universe. Um, if you had a magic wand right now, um, what what are your magic wand wishes around your, the next chapters you see um, for it, and and we can't talk about a potential project we will get to work on, but I'm super excited to potentially help grow investors in Utah. But what types of uh, what types of uh, projects are exciting you going forward, and what are the priorities for the community foundation in Utah? You know, I think something that's really exciting for us is the we're noticing a big shift in the philanthropic landscape here in, in Utah, at least, that I think is tied to a, a broader shift nationally, although I'm not as well positioned to really speak to that. But it's kind of this, we're getting this sense from donors that, you know, for donors who have been giving for a while, there's sort of this realization that for some folks and issues where they've and giving to an issue for decades and they're seeing that issue get worse and not better and that's prompting them to re-examine their approach and say okay if i've been giving to this for a long time and this issue is now worse than when i started i really need to take a deep look at what's happening and what's going on and what might i do differently in my philanthropy in order to help the ecosystem get to a different outcome so you have that happening coupled with a generational shift that we're all experiencing. And I think, you know, a newer generation of philanthropists kind of by nature of being a newer generation has, you know, is curious about different and new ways of doing things. So I think um, those two things are going to have a really, really significant influence on um, the Utah ecosystem over the next 10 years. And I'm hopeful that part of that is going to be Again, this uh, this sort of full spectrum model of philanthropy and donors really thinking about how they can align more and more of their capital around around these goals. So I think that's that's something that I that I get really excited about, and we're starting to do more and more donor education in that space. And I think we're also just seeing some of the assumptions that have embedded philanthropy for so long starting to be questioned. Uh, and I'll like one example that's top of mind right now for me is, you know, the, the idea of perpetuity. I think the system of philanthropy is sort of starts with this assumption that if you're a philanthropist, you want whatever you're doing to be perpetual and like foundations are designed to be perpetual, you know, that's whatever, all our infrastructure is designed to perpetuate that, that model, which is not a bad model by any means it's just but it's one model of a number of models and i think we're starting to see things get reframed where instead of starting with some of these assumptions you have donors really starting to say like what what do i actually want to achieve 
And can I get really clear about that? And then if I can, and the answer to that question dictates everything. It dictates my model. It dictates my vehicle. It dictates who I have involved in it. You start with the end in mind and then you build backwards, which I think historically philanthropy has kind of been the inverse. You kind of start with all the infrastructure and all the stuff, then you kind of figure out how to get it out into the world. But we're, we're starting to see that whole thing flip around, which again, I think will have some some pretty pretty big consequences. I think that plus one on that all around, I think one of the, I'm working with, uh, I'm with part of the Just Economy Institute and one of the fellows in that is we're kind of playing around with this idea of there is a concept called death over dinner. I don't know if you've heard about it, but no. you get it, you, it's a, a structured conversation about dying where you get together a bunch of friends and you have, you go through this, let's have death, let's have dinner and talk about death. And um, I'm thinking we need to have that same conversation of like, let's have dinner and talk about money. And there's a piece of, to what you said, I'm seeing the same thing and people getting clear of like, how much do I actually need to feel safe? And for myself, my kids, my family, all of those things. And then after that, that's kind of potential that those additional resources are, have the potential for, to have deep impact. And then the next part of the conversation is what does the community need you know of the subject area that i care about and i i find a, a community steward i want to place a bet on for lack of a better, better word like the idea of going to them and saying hey community steward like if you had your wildest dreams come true like what what are those full spectrum capital needs from time tre treasure talent and and let's reverse engineer that, especially when it comes to the capital side, to give you what you need so that you can solve the problems of your community at the both the pace and the scale um, that we need to, you know, whether you're working on solving the the wealth gap or the achievement gap or working to make our solve our climate problems, um, that shift in that mindset is is beautiful and plus one on everything you've said. So I'm very interested in in helping like stand up. Uh, let's have uh, dinner and talk about money. And um, Kathleen McQuiggan is is very well known for asking people like, "What's your number? Like, how much do you need?" And it's just not a conversation we often have in this way. No, I mean we're not culturally conditioned to talk about money, are we? But yeah, that's I love this dinner idea. Yeah, in our death or. God forbid, both at the same time, yeah. Oh, for sure. There you go. Talk about both at the same time. Um, I'm excited. We get to see each, each other in June 15th. And we just had Seth, um, we kind of launched our series. We're going to have you all publicly on a series. Um, and Seth um, Baker from Van Wert County Community Foundation was on the first webinar and could not believe it. Uh, it's a, I don't know if you've heard his story very much, but he... Um, leads a, a community foundation, uh, one of the older ones, and it's almost all endowed, endowed dollars, right? So kind of the opposite of, of what your foundation looks like. And Eric Doden, um, who I met through our team and Karen Eller and, um, and uh, Greg Sherman in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, we got connected to Eric and Eric 
um, basically challenged this town. And, and there's a lot of towns, unlike Salt Lake City and Denver, which were having expansive growth of, of population. That part of the world is seeing uh, the kids are not coming back to work and, and live in those towns. And so they basically said, you know, is your foundation set up for perpetuity? And they said, yeah, we're good. Yeah, we're really proud of that. And then Eric said, is your town going to be around in 100 years? And they're like, oh, maybe not. So they've taken their endowment and purchased 55 buildings on Main Street. 55 buildings. Wow, that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? So super interesting story. It's up recorded on on our Impact Investing Institute, but super excited to to get you all in kind of the same conversation, sharing that those stories together because now he has a liquidity issue, right? We need to make sure that he can still meet the obligations because there's long-term commitments to nonprofits that they've been serving. And so I'm super interested if we can f- use the philanthropic opportunity scan. So I'm super interested to see if we can use the philanthropic opportunity scan to essentially find savings in that nonprofit community and use part or all of those savings to help uh, resource the nonprofits while they're also deeply taking that money and investing on Main Street. So I think that's uh, selfishly, I'm loving um, reconnecting with you in this space, reconnecting with Seth you know, individually and collectively. And it's going to be a lot of fun as we, as we stand up this first one day workshop and then move it around the country at different times so that we can learn from each other and also help solve these problems. I I think you and Seth give me hope and Alex, who you work with, of like, it is possible. Like, it's not just a hypothetical. You can actually move money for um, out of Wall Street into Main Street, taking the best of Wall Street to, to make that so. And so that People are still getting the return, the risk, liquidity they want with the impact. In our closing um, minutes, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or share with the audience as we wind down our conversation? You know, I think my my only like parting soapbox style comment would be that just kind of how I, I think about community foundations in this particular space, you know, a lot of people hear that phrase, you know, philanthropy is society's risk capital. And while I don't like to generalize too much about what philanthropy is or isn't, I I generally agree with that statement. And I see community foundations as like the risk capital of the risk capital in the sense that we, most community foundations have, you know, they, they have some discretionary dollars, right? But there are a lot of other funders in their ecosystem mm-hmm. and a lot of, they have good relationships with most of them. And so for me, a lot of what I see a community foundation's role as is really to show the ecosystem what is possible because mm-hmm. there is so much you can do in philanthropy and create a way to make new things safe and accessible and interesting for anyone else who might want to do those things. And so when I, when I think of full spectrum capital, you know, I think of every foundation as on its own point and along that journey, and we're certainly not even close to the end on ours, but just the, you know, importance of staying active around this. And as 
when what whatever that means to your own foundation. But thinking about how 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 might we do things differently and deploy more of our assets in alignment with our mission. And I think a lot of it is it's going to feel new, it's going to be risky, it's going to feel different. Um, but I would argue that as a as a community foundation, that's our job is we have to our job is to show be the risk capital, the risk capital, and show what what you can do and create that space for other funders to do it too, should they get inspired to do so. So I would just hope that everybody, you know, wherever they are along that journey, um, especially if you're a community foundation, just be thinking about that. I, you cannot think of a better way to end uh, the Courageous Capital Stewards podcast with the call to action to be brave. I mean, you're essentially saying it is your opportunity, responsibility, your joy to be, to, to take those risks, to figure it out. And um, I've also heard you many times say the importance of you're not going to have all the answers um, up front. Yes, you'll never have all the answers. At least Just I never like, take that first step, right? And so thank you for you and Alex and the rest of your Kiki and the rest of your amazing team for uh, being not only brave within Utah, but brave amongst uh, community foundations. We're super grateful to be in community with you and and love being a part of your journey along the way. So thank you for spending time with us today. Of course, it was a pleasure being here. And it's great to have, again, relationships like you, because like you just said, I I normally don't have the answer. And so the only way to get it is to be in community with other people who who might have it. And then having those that community relationships to to go seek it out. So uh, I'm grateful to be a part of your name. Well, thank you, Ian. And we will see each other very soon. Yes. See you in Denver.